Today's episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash deathdyingpod. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Today's episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things is also brought to you by BarkBox.com. Get one free extra month of BarkBox at getbarkbox.com slash deathdyingpod. You're listening to the Modern Horrors Podcast Network. I just want to give a shout out to Patreons Daniel Smith and Daya Darko for supporting the show on Patreon. It means a lot. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash death dying and other things. Any little bit helps. Now, on to the show. I often think about how easy it is to lose things in bodies of water. Ever gotten your sunglasses knocked off by a wave in the ocean? They're gone. Dropped your keys off the side of a boat into a lake? See ya. Tubing down a river and change fall out of your pocket? Never seeing it again. When investigators have reason to suspect that a corpse is hidden somewhere in the murky waters of a pond or lake, they drag it. Literally, they dredge the lake bed, whether with divers or hooks on the end of ropes, hoping to snag something, anything, that might be a body. And when they do, they heave it up, and sometimes it's the body they're looking for. So many secrets could be hidden down there in the muck. It's honestly terrifying. At least as terrifying as the vast distances between the stars I often go on and on about. This month on Death, Dying, and Other Things, two stories about bodies and bodies of water. In It Spoke, a corpse in a riverbed says a few words. In The Watermen of Drag Lake, a local legend is born. Death and dying, the thresholds between this world and the next, the boundary between light and dark, the barrier between worlds, and that's where we're going. We are going into the shadows to bring you stories of horror and heartbreak. From the Modern Horrors Podcast Network, this is Death, Dying, and Other Things. I'm Justin Buskey. Stay with us. dusk when Rachel Kelso found the body face down in Powell Creek. She was hiking after work, which she did at least three times a week. It was good exercise, and the only kind of exercise she ever really liked. Rachel wasn't sure what it was she was looking at as she first approached. That's a body wasn't high in her mind's vocabulary of thoughts. What was clear to her was there was something new in the small creek in front of her, in her usual hiking path. This is where her hike usually turned around and headed back to her car, which she parked on the side of a rarely used highway. She was outside of town, not far outside, but far enough that the traffic died down and her cell phone lost service and she could escape the constant emails for an hour. 
she usually, on this hike, crossed the creek here, or it was only a few inches deep, and followed it back to where it went under the highway, which she then could follow a couple hundred yards to her car. When she had gotten within fifty feet of the thing in the creek, that's when her heart sank. It wasn't a log or a small boulder that rolled down from the mountain, or even a dead deer. It was the body of a man, face down in the slow-moving water. He had on jeans but no shirt, and the skin on his back had turned mottled and gray. Rachel snatched her phone out of her pocket, but there was of course no signal. She contemplated running back to her car and riding back down the highway to pick up a signal again to call the police, but then she noticed the bubbles each time the creek water splashed the side of the man's face. Was he still trying to breathe, Rachel thought. Do I have a chance to save this man? She threw her pack onto the bank of the creek and splashed through the shallow water with her boots. Getting a closer look at the corner of the man's mouth, it sure seemed to Rachel that he was still taking short, shallow breaths. She grabbed his shoulder, frigid cold, and flipped the man over onto his back with great effort. A small minnow flopped out of the eye it had been eating. Some of the skin on the man's belly sloughed off, soft from the soak in the creek. His mouth hung wide, his jaw slack. A wide wound, a stab wound from some large blade, right at the man's heart, seeped brown water. This man was not still breathing. Rachel gasped and then retched from the smell. The stench of death is not something she was accustomed to in her daily life. She backed up a few steps, back to the solid ground of the creek bank, and reached for her pack. The sun was setting. If she hustled, she could get back to her car in 15 minutes. Then, a 10-minute drive toward town would bring back the cell phone signal. Then she could call the cops and report the body. Rachel swung the pack around her shoulders and strapped it to her back, then turned when she heard a croaking sound come from the creek. Don't go it sounded like. Don't go. She turned back toward the body to see it laying, lifeless, in the slow current of Powell Creek. She shook her head and tried to talk some sense into herself. It was dusk. Frogs and toads and insects all get more active when the sun's going down. That's it. It was a nearby bullfrog, and she had just misheard it as don't go. Don't go. How ridiculous. She turned again, and only took two steps away from the creek before she heard the same voice croaking again. Please. Please. She had half a mind to run, and probably should have, but she turned once more toward the body and heard that croaking voice say again, Don't. Go. She stared at the body for a long while, frozen in place by fear or confusion or both. The sun was nearly down. The pink sky was giving way to a purple one, and within ten minutes, it would be black and speckled with white. She knew she had stayed out here too long. She would need to get back to her car. Did you say something? She asked the body. Then she laughed. This had been the most bizarre hike of her life, and now she was asking a corpse if it had spoken to her. But the corpse moved its jaw right there in front of Rachel, and then again croaked. Don't go. Rachel's blood ran colder than it had been. She lost the color in her cheeks, her fingers went stiff, her toes went numb, and again the corpse croaked, 
please, please. Rachel took off her pack and reached into the large compartment to find the flashlight she had always packed just in case. She clicked it on and flashed it around and then she rested the beam on the face of the body she had found. Who are you? she asked the body. Please, please, it croaked back to her. Why don't you want me to go? Don't go. Don't go. I want to help you, Rachel said. How can I help you? Please, please, it answered. Don't go. Don't go. Rachel dropped the flashlight beam off of the man's face. If I'm going to help you, I have to go. I have to go get help, she said. Please, please, the man croaked back. I promise I'll be back with help. Behind her, she heard the telltale crunch of something large stepping on a fallen twig, and she spun around to see two large figures plodding toward her. They looked like they were robed, but it could have just been the way their skin hung loosely from their bones. Clawed hands peeked from loose sleeves, and if they had heads, Rachel couldn't see them. She swept the flashlight beam around her in a circle. She was surrounded. Rachel made a break between two of those awful things, and the body in the creek croaked, Don't. Go. Rachel Kelso's car was discovered on the side of the highway, where she always parked for her favorite hike, but her body? Her body was never found. At least, not recovered by anyone who's around to tell about it. I know, I know. I'm about to ask you to rate and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen, and I know you hear it from me all the time, but it really is one of the best ways to help us out. People have been going missing in the wilderness around a small lake in the northern part of the state of Wisconsin. 26 people, six incidents over 60 years. It's in the forest south of Lake Superior, nestled in between hills, menacing the locals. Its real name has been overridden by the colloquial nickname it's gotten over so many years. Drag Lake, on account of the number of times the lake bed's been dredged with hooks looking for corpses. To complement the ominous nickname, the locals have also raised a legend beside it a group of beings that contribute to the rising body count, if not explain it completely. A thing to warn outsiders about, and children too. Don't go near the lake, don't even think about it, or the watermen will get ya. The Watermen of Drag Lake. A good name to pique the interest of those passing through. You can picture it on a billboard, right? Come see the Watermen of Drag Lake. You won't believe your eyes. Take exit 14 now. But in all my research, I've never seen any evidence of a money-making scheme from the watermen. And the legend itself is so dispersed around the communities that circle Drag Lake, it seems much too decentralized to be more than just a local legend. A bunch of hyper-local cryptids that a mourning community has used to explain the common tragedy of people going missing in the woods. It happens a lot, after all. People go camping and vanish without a trace, even seasoned campers. Hundreds of people go missing every year. 
The stories are always the same. A person or group of people go in and never come out. The first of these stories, near as I can tell, happened back in the late 60s. Two men on a fishing boat, enjoying the calm waters of Drag Lake. Their boat drifted back to the shore, but no one was inside of it. Within days, the police had dragged the bottom of the lake and, sure enough, found the remains of the two men, or what was left of their remains. All that was left were bones, bright white, freshly exposed, and covered in long, circular grooves. A few years later, a lone camper was snatched from inside his tent on the shores of the lake. The remains of the camper were found again at the bottom of the lake, bones stripped clean. The Mendelssohn disappearance happened 15 years later, in the early 80s, and this is the first time I find any mention of the watermen. Dr. Mendelssohn was a researcher from the university. She had three students with her, too. They were interested in how the local ecosystem was reacting to the minor changes in climate that had been happening over the previous decades, and were taking samples of topsoil through the forest. Once their disappearance was noted, the search for Dr. Mendelssohn and her three students found their gear on the bank of Drag Lake, but there were three things about the scene that investigators found troubling. Number one, all of the gear was accounted for. A catalog from the university obtained by police lists each item the group of four took into the wilderness. There wasn't a single trowel, compass, or jar missing from their packs, so they weren't robbed. Number two, conversely, their gear was removed from their packs, every scrap of it. Each glass tube, flare gun, and flag was removed from their packs and sorted into piles, which investigators determined was likely done by shape. And number three were the footprints. Two sets of large footprints, no shoes or boots, just bare feet. And the feet that left them didn't seem to have any arch. They were flat and broad and didn't push the dirt and mud of the bank the same way a human foot or even an animal paw might. The mud around each footprint had barely moved, almost like each foot simply sank into the muck rather than pushing off as in a normal step. Dr. Mendelssohn and her four students were found, again, on the bottom of Drag Lake, bones stripped clean and gouged with deep, circular grooves. This incident, the Mendelssohn disappearance, and the odd specifics surrounding it, the lack of a robbery, the sorting of the gear into piles, and the footprints found got people talking. And the state of the bones, once they were found, freshly scraped clean and with bizarre grooves, linked the other two disappearances of the two fishermen and the lone camper to the Mendelssohn party. The Crenshaw family disappeared a few years later. From out of town, the Crenshaws, Mike and Bridget and their three children, Brad, Kelly, and Will, had come for a camping trip on the recommendation of one of their neighbors in suburban Minneapolis. There was only one problem. Their neighbors, when talking about this great camping site in the Wisconsin wilderness, pointed to the wrong area when showing Mike Crenshaw on the map. 
They pointed to the forest around Drag Lake, instead of the forest surrounding a different and, note, much safer lake, nearer to the Minnesota-Wisconsin border. Why they made this mistake, the police never could figure out, and they chalked it up to an honest mistake. And you know, I'm inclined to believe the investigators here. Initially, I had zeroed in on these neighbors as somehow key to understanding all these disappearances around Drag Lake. Why and how could they mistake, on a map, one lake with another so easily? But one glance at a map of this part of the state can tell you how. There are so many lakes dotting the landscape that they all blend together. The Crenshaw family, according to investigators, probably were camping without issue for several days. They'd built a fire pit, cleaned fish to eat, hiked the hills. Then, on maybe the third night, they were all dragged from their tent. When local sheriffs found the campsite, a lot of the same behavior from the Mendelssohn disappearance was also present here. The tent had been ripped to shreds, but then each scrap of canvas was carefully stacked together with other similarly shaped scraps. The Crenshaw's carefully gathered bags of trash had been ripped open, and each item inside sorted into piles, tin cans with other tin cans, cardboard boxes with other cardboard boxes. And those footprints, those same footprints were everywhere. They dragged to the lake and found four of the five Crenshaw's bones. Only the remains of Will Crenshaw, the youngest, weren't recovered. Fifteen years later, in the late 90s, an entire Boy Scout troop and its leader went missing from the shores of Drag Lake. Rumors about the place had died down in the decade and a half since the Crenshaw family, and the troop leader, a young father named Randy Polk, had just recently relocated to the area. He thought scouts would be a good way for his son to make friends in this new place, and so started a troop. They'd been together for just over six months when they planned this camping trip and headed out. They didn't last nearly as long as the Crenshaws. They had planned for three nights in the forest, but the evidence points to them not even lasting a full night. Most of their food was unopened, and three of the seven sleeping bags and one of the three tents they had brought had not even been set up yet. All of this, of course, was sorted into piles, and six of the seven individuals' bones were found, of five of the scouts and the leader, Randy Polk, stripped clean at the bottom of the lake. And here's where it gets even more tragic. The remains of one of the scouts, Nick Lowell, weren't recovered. There was a search party assembled, a hundred people at first moving through the forest calling Nick's name. That number started to dwindle after a week of searching, and soon after, the only people searching were Nick's parents, Harriet and Mark Lowell. Harriet and Mark didn't find their son dead or alive that summer, and they held out hope for the next decade and a half that they might, spending a week in the forest surrounding Drag Lake and looking for Nick once a year. One summer, a couple years ago, they didn't come back, and once they were reported missing, a familiar scene greeted investigators on the bank of Drag Lake. There was one thing, though, that wasn't at the sites of the other disappearances. A camera. 
Harriet Lowell had always taken a camera on these trips to search for Nick, hoping to find something, anything, that could lead to their son. She'd snap pictures of broken twigs, of candy wrappers half-buried in the dirt, of shapes in the soil that might be footprints. At the end of the camera roll, on this low-end consumer point-and-shoot, is a photo that makes my stomach flip every time I see it. Harriet has, in the last photo ever taken by this camera, documented what I think is Mark and Harriet's last moments alive. In the photo, Mark is standing on the bank of Drag Lake. He's looking at Harriet, or at the camera in Harriet's hands, and smiling. Behind him, the still waters of the lake stretch back towards the hills, which the sun is just about to finish setting behind. The sky is brilliant purple and pink, and the wispy clouds look like they're on fire, reflecting the brilliant orange of the setting sun. It's quite beautiful, even coming out of a crappy point-and-shoot camera. But then, when your eyes circle back around, and you look at the photo again closer, you see them. At least four sets of glowing orbs just below the surface of the water. Eyes staring up at the Lowells. And just behind Mark, from some tall cattails, a webbed hand is about to grab Mark's shoulder. This episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things was produced and edited by me, Justin Buskey. The stories, both It Spoke and The Watermen of Drag Lake, were written by me, too. You can follow me on Twitter at Justin Buskey. Intro and outro music is by the prolific Eric Warnke. Check him out on SoundCloud. Special thanks to Rivers and Rowboats. Death, Dying, and Other Things is a member of the Modern Horrors Podcast Network. Check out all the other shows, they're so great. New episodes the first Thursday of every month. This has been Death, Dying, and Other Things, and I've been your host, Justin Buskey. Stay out of the shadows. Mm-hmm.